Welcome to the PKN Podcast, where we give you the wrap on all things packaging. Welcome, folks, to the PKN Packaging News Podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and as ever, I'm joined by Lindy Hewson, Managing Editor and Publisher of PKN Packaging News and the host of this show. G'day, Lindy. Can you please tell us about our topic and our guest for this episode? Well, hello, Grant. Today, we're going to be expanding our dialogue around the circular economy and plastics. And we're joined in the studio by Helen Milliser. She's a respected can-do leader in Australia who has a wealth of expertise in the hot topic areas of plastics, waste and recycling. Now, Helen is here today to tell us what is working, what needs improvement and where Australia is headed. Quite a remit, Helen. Welcome to the podcast. And we're going to do that all in 20 minutes, are we, Lindy? Well, roughly thereabouts. We'll, we'll be forgiven for going on a bit. We'll give it our best shot. We certainly will. Now, let's go straight to the heart of the matter. Plastics, packaging and litter. So, we love and we hate plastics, Helen. We can't live without them. And yet, litter and ocean pollution are getting worse. What do you think? Indeed. Uh, it was predicted a number of years ago that by 2050, we would have more plastics in the ocean than fish if we kept going the way we are. And it is truly an indictment on our modern society that we value consumption more than what we do with the end product of those of that consumption. So, we do have a major challenge. The finger is frequently pointed at plastics and very much at packaging. But ocean litter isn't just packaging. It is a proportion of it, but it is such things as cigarette butts, rope, netting, shoes, a wide range of things that come from other sources as well. And so there is, to some extent, some responsibility that has to be put upon littering as a behaviour and also upon the other industries that uh, result in those items being discarded or lost at sea. We do also have a significant challenge with uh, material which is being shipped around the world as recyclable waste, um, ending up in countries where labour costs are low and environmental standards are low. And so we've been practising that in Australia for some decades. Many countries are doing that and sending their waste plastics that they don't want to other countries. And so what we're ostensibly doing is offshoring our problem because we don't want to have to deal with it. Now, the Australian government two years ago announced that that practice was going to cease. And uh, as of uh, this year, a ban was introduced on the export of waste plastics that weren't of one particular type. So no more mixed plastics of dubious quality was going to be sending sent overseas from the 1st of July. And as of next year, it's going to even get more stringent because that will need to be reprocessed here on shore if it's going to leave this country. We are the first country in the world to put that sort of system in place. So it's a brave experiment by the Australian government and other nations are certainly watching. But that's only part of the challenge that we face because what we've been exporting isn't just packaging. We've also been sending overseas things like bumper bars, um, other sorts of industrial plastics, uh, which are re able to be reprocessed and are reprocessed in those countries. So now all of that, uh, as of next year in particular, will have to be reprocessed here on shore to a standard where it can be put back into product or it's going to go to landfill. 
So that will address the export issue uh, and material going offshore, but it won't necessarily address the litter issue, which is a behavioural one, which is a really significant one, but a separate one. So Helen, to bring it back to packaging recycling, because obviously that's a way of, of recovering some of this waste and preventing it from ending up in the ocean. Our recycling rates, though, are among the lowest in the developed world. Can you comment on that? Indeed. Uh, I was fairly astonished when I did my Churchill Scholarship back in 2018 to go to Europe and even to parts of Southeast Asia and see how we compared. And uh, I was really quite astonished that even the average European recycling rate is around 40%. For packaging, it's 42%. So by the time you add in the best and the worst of all the European nations, their packaging recycling recovery rate is 42%. That's separate to incineration and separate to landfill. So it's astronomical. So our packaging recovery rate here in Australia of around 13, 14% has been pretty stagnant for a long period of time. So even taking account of container deposit schemes, which provide for clean streams, it's still, we're dealing with little incremental shifts and we need some fundamental rethinks and reshapes about the way we do the what we recover and how we recover it. So we do have to make some step changes to through market pool, through some regulatory instruments, through uh, capturing more from commercial and industrial facilities where there's minimal packaging recovered. We have got a lot of big changes to undertake if we want to get close to reaching the targets that have been agreed to by state and territory and the federal governments, uh, which are printed and published by ABCO. So I just want to clarify, when you're talking about that 13% packaging recycling recovery rate, are you talking plastic or are you grouping all materials there? No, that's just plastics. I'm comparing plastics with plastic, packaging with packaging. Good. Okay. And some of the best performing countries over there are in stellar numbers, as you can imagine. Uh, the worst performing European country in terms of plastics recovery was, I think, 22%. So we are substantially behind even some of the least developed European countries. So we've seen in the market... Um a varied response. Um, we've seen a confusing response to some extent. We've had a few bans of, of items like straws, of plastic bags and so on. Can you comment on, on the response from your educated point of view? Indeed. Uh, I had the privilege to work in the Victorian government at the time of 2018-19. I went in there for a, what do you call it? Not quite, a, it's not a sabbatical. <laughs> it was the opposite of a sabbatical. Uh, a really intense period just after China had announced that it was going to be closing its borders to imported plastic waste uh, and problematic materials. And um, so it was a trial by uh, fire to some extent because we had such a dramatic change in demand for what we'd been customarily accustomed to sending offshore. So the whole system, like a sausage maker, kind of started to gum up. And so in uh, Victoria, we were faced with a fairly dramatic situation about, you know, being confronted with what we'd been doing for some period of time. 
and having to rethink and go back to the drawing board. And a whole range of things are rightfully on the drawing table because you have to tackle this in a range of ways. Plastic packaging is complex. There are many different material types. They're not compatible to one another. They come as soft and hard um, or rigid and flexible, if you want to call it that. So, And they're ubiquitous in so many of of our, our homes and situations. Um, uh, so it's a really difficult challenge to tackle. And the plastic bag ban, which you mentioned, is one step, and it was a very important step. In Victoria, our ban was... We learned from the experiences of other states and decided to make that inclusive of all types of plastic, whether it's degradable, non-degradable, compostable, etc., because what we wanted was fundamentally a behavioural shift and a, um, organisational, if you wanted, a cultural change towards durable, reusable bags, which could be used time and time again. Uh, so that was an important initiative to bring through that legislation and work with um, industry players, stakeholders and so forth to bring that into effect. Likewise, it's important to clean up other parts of the problematic stream, which includes things that we don't really need, which we've lived very well for eons and centuries before without, uh, which are the disposable items which are, you know, single use often and, you know, the prime part of what is littered. So things like straws, plastic napkins, plastic plates, those sorts of things, which, you know, fundamentally can be replaced with a durable um, quality piece. So that change is now being recognised by the Australian government and that will be wide sweeping across the country by 2025. And that also forms part of the program around the national waste strategy. So, I mean, those are, those are all good things. Um, is that enough? No. But it's a really good start. And so, in that sense, we're following on from what other countries are doing. But there's a lot more that can be done, which is around reusable packaging. We've barely scratched the surface in Australia in understanding that or providing incentives for more of those sorts of programs to take place. And in the time that I worked with APCO so closely over the last uh, 18 months or what have you, there were numerous queries and requests that were coming through for return schemes. Um, and that's principally around business-to-business return schemes, which is where the biggest opportunities really lie. And that's with polypropylene 20-litre tubs, that's with bread crates, that's with all those, you know, um, you know, kinds of products and packaging that can easily be with good schemes and programs put into place. But it requires a collective effort. And at the moment, the schemes or the programs that we have are very, you know, awarding one company as opposed to a collective or a supply chain systemic approach. So, a new way of thinking about packaging could facilitate that. And likewise, a new way of thinking about um, what is sold in store and how that packaging can be returned or reused. Um, there's We've barely scratched the surface in that area. And I really do encourage that we're, that's our new frontier and opportunity. And certainly we are starting to see glimmers. Um, We've got companies that have developed those kinds of reusable schemes, small companies like ZeroCo. We've had them on the podcast recently. We've got large companies investing in recycling facilities where they can reclaim the RPET, people like companies like Pact, who are encouraging competitors like Asahi and 
Coca-Cola Euro-Pacific partners to come together to the table to work on a solution for recycled PET. So there are some good things happening. If I can join you in there, so a critical component to Lindy to add to this is that consistency. So we do need to make some pretty tough decisions. Non-recyclable packaging really should be strong, strenuously questioned and a premium price put on it. If it's not going to be banned, then there needs to be some kind of price incentive for it to change. Um, so, I have a big issue with um, packaging which is coloured, opaque, um, which is non-recyclable or which has um, certain additives which make recycling and recyclability very difficult. Uh, I can't understand why brand owners can't come up with a design solution for a sleeve which does away with the bottle having to be coloured or made opaque for their brand identity. I really just can't understand that. Fine, if they want to do that, then there should be a cost put upon them choosing to do that, that then goes towards either a recovery system or some kind of chemical treatment system. But just putting that onto the market as though it's as good as, as equal to something which is recyclable or reusable, no, I'm sorry, there is a high cost that comes from something which is not recyclable or reusable. Are you advocating that perhaps this should be mandated? Absolutely. Yeah. Over time, phased in, why not? In the same way, we have mandatory seatbelts, we have mandatory fines if you go too fast in speed zones. We have those sorts of mandatory, you know, also, there's a penalty for doing wrong and there's a prize for doing good. And so, really, uh, a similar approach here. That's not to say if someone wants to continue to produce green bottles or you know, something like that, that's fine, but they pay a premium for that. Uh, so that, and that money then goes in towards supporting design for good or design for environmental good so that we support overall industry to shift. Because at the moment, we've got basically a system where we're still allowing laissez-faire with all the environmental costs being borne downstream and not being reflected in uh, the purchase price or the consumption price. Now, one of the advantages that we do have as a country um, that has perhaps not been fully realised is that we are one of only a handful of countries that has the complete plastic supply chain on shore. Am I correct in saying that, Helen? Yes. So, there are not many countries in the world that are producers of oil and gas that have refineries that have the full supply chain onshore. Uh, Australia is blessed by this and yet we still don't have, for example, a plastics strategy or a plan to support that industry to become more circular and sustainable. And there's really significant opportunity for us to to do that. Uh, it is a significant asset because behind all of that capital and equipment, there's also the technical know-how, the international expertise, the international networks and connections that come from that. And um, by having both Quenos and Lionel Bazell here in Australia, we actually have the capacity, in a sense, almost more than many other countries to have a truly circular system. So, if we wanted to, we could recover plastics at scale, put it back through those systems, whether it's through um, innovations like the Lacella 
um, initiative was, which was which was just put online. Uh, they commissioned it this week. Um, we have an extraordinary capacity in this country to make plastics almost more circular than most countries in the world if we choose to grab that. Were you a little surprised then that the government's national plastics plan didn't touch on that? Oh, yes and no, Lindy. Um, I was very hopeful that it would be all-encompassing and appreciating the full supply chain that we have here, uh, the key players, you know, the whole from the resin producers like Lionel Bazell and Quenos right through to the manufacturers and the fabricators and understanding the diversity of the sector. Um, but it's not the case because the industry really has been fractured and not working particularly as a whole for quite some time. And I don't think that government has appreciated all the key players that are here. Um, so we have, for example, groups like Chemistry Australia, which mainly represents the major chemical companies. We have small offshoot plastics fabricating associations, which represent the fabricators and the manufacturers like Vinyl Council of Australia, Expanded Polystyrene Australia, the Roto Moulders Association of Australia. So there are a range of other subsidiary representative associations, but they don't work as one voice. And the uh, Australian government's main focus when they talk about oil and gas is around energy, not about the byproducts, which are things like plastics. So the government now, I think, is come to realise that it has a tremendous asset here. The Victorian government, where these facilities are located, has recognised that these facilities are here. And I am confident that future iterations of such strategies and plans will start to take that into account. And the Lysella project is a brilliant example of that circularity and understanding that all those parts of the supply chain are essential for the circle economy to work. So without those parts of the supply chain, we don't have a circle. But we have the potential for a circle here like so many other countries don't have. Well, let's hope that um, the voice will get louder and that we will be able to come full circle on that, Helen. Now, to come back to government, um, you mentioned earlier that government has taken a unique and rather brave step um, by being the first in the world to ban exports and sales of plastics waste uh, to the countries like Indonesia or Malaysia. Uh, when we were talking before, you said to me, this is like putting a plug in the tub. So um, <laughs> let's just talk about that a little bit. What, what is the pressure that's building up and how are we dealing with the waste, I'm assuming, is what's filling up the tub? It's a good one, isn't it? A plug in a tub. So, yes, uh, we keep putting more plastics into our tub, uh, if you want to follow that analogy, Lindy, exactly. And um, because we're continuing to purchase and consume and put it into our households and use it for our food and all those sorts of things. And so, the federal government's ban is basically saying you can't send this offshore to your offshore markets anymore without it being treated and reprocessed here locally. 
And because the price, uh, you know, people were being, companies were being paid for export of that and whether it was um, the Pact Group or, you know, someone who had a um, MRF, whether it was CleanAway or elsewhere, they were sending that as bailed material offshore. And now they're going to have to find ways to have that treated locally. And there's a significant amount of investment underway, which is part supported by governments and sometimes by banks and private companies to put in place reprocessing here locally. So, by putting the plug in the tub, the Australian government has basically stopped some of the outflow of material and increased the investment in capital and infrastructure, in jobs and skilling here in Australia and the amount of material that's going to be reprocessed here. And hopefully, it may also really accelerate conversation about what is recyclable. So, though, mind you, having said that, we have been sending a fair amount of non-recyclable packaging to landfill for some time, but we've also been sending a fair amount of really good material to landfill um, because we haven't been collecting it. So, this is why I'm, in a sense, calling for us to really think about what, how we restructure our collections from non-residential facilities in order to capture all sorts of valuable materials from those facilities, not just plastic packaging. But, you know, you think about all those, you know, large, beautiful polypropylene tubs which are used for salads and foods and, um, for example, or paint or um, all sorts of, well, not just even paint, but, um, you know, shipment of material. And quite often some of that ends up in landfill when it's still good quality and could go around again. So, we've seen governments invest quite a stack of money, about uh, estimate around 500 million in public money that's been invested at a national and a state level to kickstart or boost rather our, our recycling activity. Do you think that this money is that the pot is going to run dry? Oh, no. No. No, it, it can't. No, well, because the plug is in the in the tub. <laughs> so, um, uh, and if and as landfill prices continue to go up, as they are for every jurisdiction over coming years, the economic viability of reprocessing material locally will increase. If we also had differential pricing and we put in more requirements around source separation we would see uh, more material recovered uh, rather than going to landfill. So, I have no doubt that that will achieve that. It's a bit like, um, you know, the, uh, I mean, in Europe, the European Commission and governments and industry over there have made a pledge that they will recover 10 million tonnes of plastics by 2025 per year. So, 10 million tonnes per annum. Now, that doesn't include, that's inclusive of packaging, but it's all plastics. So, that includes from pipe, flooring, etc. But it's a pretty ambitious target and they've had to sign up to that pledge. It's a mandatory pledge. So, unlike here in Australia where uh, we have voluntary targets or we have targets and we have voluntary um, targets around recycled content, in Europe, they've 
given that a go and it's worked to a certain extent and they've proven that it's possible and now they're moving to mandating it. So, you know, I would hope that once we prove the concept and APCO's targets go a good way towards that, and we already have recycled content in most of our packaging formats of plastics, but we can start to increase that. So, uh, we can certainly do that with polypropylene. We can do that with PET, we can do that with LDPE and HDPE. So, if we start to provide market pull and incentives, the circle will close. Yeah, well, I spoke the other day with uh, Pact Group CEO Sanjay Dale, and he was saying exactly that, that if we had that if we had that market pool, if we had even some mandates around these things, it would certainly create more incentive for them to happen faster. I mean, realistically, let's look at those, let's talk about those 2025 targets. How likely is it that we're going to achieve them? Well, unless we actually put some of these game-changing things into place, we're not going to reach them. So, the incremental numbers that we have now are great and it shows that it's possible. We're yet to see how, what the next round of results will show because the targets only came out earlier this year. Um, but I am sure that, uh, you know, within a year or two, once we see what the trend and trajectory is, uh, there'll be considerable meetings around the table uh, and discussions that need to be had. I do think we also need to be cognizant that plastic is plastic and whether it's packaging or product, if it goes back into durable product, that's still a good outcome. And we know that with the soft plastics, getting soft plastics into soft plastics again is the only way to do it is through something like a Lysella program. Yeah, like the KitKat so, wrapper. Mm. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, putting in place targets will help facilitate and underwrite that kind of capital investment and the, all the supply chains that then support the recovery of that material. But to my mind, if I'm buying a water tank and it's made out of LDPE and it's roto-moulded out of LDPE, which is recovered or from um, a rubbish bin, and it's made out of my recycled plastic bags, I'm very happy about that. So, you know, this is you know, a conversation that needs to be had as well about where else will this material go? Because it currently does go into other applications and that's fine, particularly if it's long-lived, quality, durable application. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. So, it's all very well for it to go into the park bench, but where does the park bench end up? Well, if it's a recyclable long-life park bench and it lives for 50 years, I think that's a pretty good thing. So, um, but the challenge is that we don't have targets for any other types of product streams at the moment. So, there isn't additional incentive. We're basically, in a way, we're kind of suggesting that packaging plastic is a world apart from the rest of the plastic universe, and it's not. So, it's appropriate to think about the plastic packaging sector being part of the larger plastics, sorry, the larger plastics sector. And how can we support circularity across the range of those items? Because if indeed it's an LDPE bottle today and it's my wheelie bin tomorrow, and that wheelie then bin then goes on to be another wheelie bin or it goes on to be a rainwater tank. That's fantastic, you know, and we have the potential in this country to do that because we manufacture the wheelie bins, we manufacture the rainwater tanks, we manufacture the packaging. We have the essence, the essential elements here in this country. 
Well, I think that's great for, for plastics, especially that can't be collected necessarily in an entirely clean stream. But when it comes to trying to get uh, plastics packaging back into plastics packaging, uh, one of the fundamental problems is the clean stream collection, especially for food grade. So do you think perhaps that collection needs to be addressed as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm not a big fan for commingled collections because putting a lot of good things together, like making a bolognese, it's really hard to take out the meat, the carrot, the tomato that you put in. So I'm a great believer in as much source separation as possible in order to preserve the value. What we're currently asking is for the poor people in the MRFs to separate what was really good stuff that's been all mashed together uh, and come up with gold. And um, I'm not saying that we would necessarily have a completely separate bin for everything, but certainly local drop-offs, return to base, um, uh, far more um, easily um, separated items. Um, I was a big advocate in Victoria for the separate glass bin because glass is such a contaminant to other things and it's a valuable material in its own right and could be far better used than penetrating and um, being problematic for paper, for example. So I'm a big believer that we bring things into our homes and in our workplace in nice packages and separately, and it's not that hard, like returning a library book or returning some clothing or things like that for us to you know, put those sorts of habits back in place. So I, I would say that the next 10 to 12 months are going to be a significant time frame for us to see what, how it all pans out in the direction that, it's, that we're going to go in. Um, okay, so Helen, you are also currently working with the Australian government on some exciting projects. Can you share a little bit more about that work? Indeed, uh, Lindy. So, um, the work uh, I've done in my life has been, um, it feels like I've come to a wonderful intersection points and all these streams have come together. Just I pinch myself up every morning when I get up because I have the honour and the opportunity to work with some astounding colleagues around Australia and stakeholders on how we actually transition our products to a more circular and sustainable future. And so, we're looking at what are the enabling factors and influences that support better design of product. So, if we think so that applies to electrical goods, built environment, transport, you know, like cars and uh, all sorts of things which we consume or manufacture here in Australia. So, in a sense, the work I was doing with APCO and the Victorian government and the work I did previously at Chemistry Australia with, or PACIA uh, and other organisations has been a great learning platform and coalesced to this astonishing project with the Australian government. Um, and I'm working on that with RMIT and Arcadis International. Uh, so we're looking globally at what are moves for better design for environmental good in a range of product streams and uh, industry sectors. Plastics is one, buildings is another, electrical goods is another, and textiles. And that is, I guess, happenstance and not, not unsurprisingly, similar to initiatives and priority sectors for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, RAP UK, UNEP, the World Economic Forum, 
the South Australian government, I think. We're all sort of, you know, identifying that these are sectors where there's significant opportunity for substantive change and improvement. And in Australia, we have, uh, it's either significant quantities going to landfill or we have significant design and manufacturing potential to impact upon it here. So, um, certainly with the plastics that we have, we are in the prime box seat to be able to drive some changes there. Well, I am feeling um, hopeful when I hear you speak uh, about the fact that you're doing all this good work. Um, the time has come, Helen, for us to wrap this up. I'd like to give you the opportunity to give one last message to our audience about the direction that we're taking and where you see the change needs to happen most urgently. Uh, as you may gather, I am an optimist. <laughs> um, uh, and pragmatic and I embrace change and I encourage anyone listening to this program to form alliances and partnerships with others that are in, interested in bringing about the changes that we need. A more productive economy is essential. We can't have the kinds of losses that we have, the waste that we have. Um, it's better for jobs through reuse, repair, recycling. There's far more work in that, skilled work in that, high value work in that than sending things to landfill. So we are, we consider ourselves to be a first world economy, but some ways we really have some gaps in what we do. And if we, fine-tune how we provide financial incentives, the regulatory incentives, the standards uh, from industry, uh, from brand owners. If we work collaboratively like we've done, we can do with one language, with one nation, we can achieve a great deal in this country. And so, all for setting strategies, targets, working collaboratively and using the financial instruments to provide the incentives for where we want to go, we will achieve um, that. It's not nirvana, but it's close to it. Lindy? <laughs> well, there's certainly a lot of work to be done and the key is that we have to do it together. Thank you for the work that you're doing to make such a major contribution to the change that needs to happen, Helen. Thank you, Lindy. Well, thank you, Helen, and thank you also to Lindy. And of course, thanks, folks, for joining us on yet another great episode. We'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another informative episode. But until then, have a great day. The PKN Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of PKN Packaging News, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of PKN Packaging News, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast audio, please contact us via the website or send an email to editor at packagingnews.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's packaging industry at packagingnews.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.